Welcome to Boston Basic Income. This week's topic is petrodollars. Petrodollar is a term used to describe the dollars that oil exporting nations receive in exchange for selling their oil. What's special about that? Well, dollars have to go somewhere in our economy, and oil exporters can become a very large destination for U.S. dollars to kind of end up. The more dollars the oil exporters want to accumulate, the more room they create for other dollars to be added to the economy. You can imagine a simplified world in which the only thing anyone sells is oil, and the U.S. prints money to buy oil as fast as the oil is produced. That's kind of what it's like. So now we can start to see the connection with basic income. Basic income adds money to the economy, and that money has to have somewhere to go. Some of us read a 2016 Bloomberg article by Andrea Wong entitled The Untold Story Behind Saudi Arabia's 41-Year U.S. Debt Secret, How a Legendary Bond Trader from Solomon Brothers Brokered a Do-or-Die Deal That Reshaped U.S.-Saudi Relations for Generations. The question that I want to ask is, how are petrodollars, or how is the petrodollar system, useful in understanding how the economy works at large and useful in thinking about basic income? We'll go to Eddie and then Richard and then Neil. Go ahead, Eddie. My initial thoughts are that petrodollars are maybe a bigger deal geopolitically than they are economically. If you look at the $115 billion of treasuries that the article talks about Saudi Arabia owning, I looked up the figure and the total amount of treasuries owned by foreign countries around the world is $7 trillion. So the $115 billion is like 1.5% of that. In terms of rank, Saudi Arabia is the number 15th owner of U.S. treasuries. So I think that economically, the more relevant issue here is that the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. Central banks around the entire world own U.S. dollars and save in U.S. dollars. If anything, Japan and China are the number one and two owners of U.S. treasuries. And I think what they do is sort of tangentially related to basic income because those two countries are traditional net exporters. And they're also both traditionally, they tend to sell their own currency on the market, which they have an infinite supply of their own currency, but they sell their currency on the market and buy up US dollars, which they save. But at the same time, this ends up sort of weakening their currency. So in a way, Japan and China have been providing a sort of basic income to the entire world through weakening their currencies and selling their goods and services on the world market a little bit cheaper than they would be able to otherwise that they did not have these policies. I think that's a really good point. They want to provide more goods for everyone else, and that means everyone else gets more goods or everyone else is able to buy more goods. Let's go to Richard, Neil, and then Bethany. In the article, they briefly mentioned that Saudi Arabia subsidizes gasoline and oil in their economy. Those subsidies, they primarily benefit the wealthy because they use a lot more gasoline and things than the poor. So if they gave out a basic income in Saudi Arabia, that would benefit the poor a lot more than the wealthy. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. I guess it's easy for them to subsidize oil because they produce the oil directly. But instead of subsidizing the oil, getting more dollars, and instead of accumulating all those dollars, maybe paying out a basic income to their citizens. Because as Eddie said, this kind of dynamic can result in the exporters kind of providing a basic income to the world. Why not provide it to their own citizens? And I just want to comment on something Eddie said about the $115 billion in treasuries. That is the official statistic. But as they said in the article, Saudi Arabia was threatening to sell $750 billion worth of 
treasuries. So there's some stuff that's not appearing on the official balance sheet if they can credibly make that threat. So their holdings of treasuries, it's more than just 1.5% or whatever. Go ahead, Neil, Bethany, and then Austin. From a purely macroeconomic idea, I think that the petrodollars and other people who are, for some reason, taking dollars and just sending us goods are one of the major reasons why interest rates are stuck at zero, because we cannot use all the productive capacity of the world. And therefore, we don't have the normal situation where people bid up the interest rates in order to bid up things so that we have a limited amount of goods and therefore we end up with inflationary pressures. So inflationary pressures are being held down by the fact that that silly people in the world are sending us goods for paper. That's a really good point. And maybe we're happy with interest rates being low, but maybe we're not. So a question we could ask is, is there a way to get interest rates higher while still having the rest of the world wanting to sell us a bunch of cheap stuff? Go ahead, Bethany, and then Austin. The question I have, and maybe people have addressed this, but you were talking about money having somewhere to go. And I'm wondering how much of the fact that they buy treasury securities with the money we give them is relevant versus just the fact that we're getting the oil. So what important role does that play? And kind of related to that with the threatening to sell, if they sold all of those treasuries, what would the consequences be? So obviously like the short-term idea would be that the price of treasury securities would go down because they'd be flooded on the market. But is that something that the government can handle somehow? Like would that actually affect demand in a long-term and systemic kind of way? Or would the Fed just buy them back up again and nobody would care? The article obviously implies that it would be a serious thing that might actually put political pressure on us. So I'm curious about that. So that's an interesting question. And there's kind of two parts to the answer. The first part is why does anyone care that Saudi Arabia is buying up treasuries? And the answer is that if they decided to just sit on the dollars and not spend the dollars, that would be fine. The fact that they've converted the dollars into treasuries, it doesn't matter except that treasuries is actually something they want to save. It's something they want to hold on to. So they're turning their one kind of dollar into a kind of dollar they actually do want to accumulate. If they're threatening to sell the treasuries, then it's not just that they're threatening to sell the treasuries and sit on a pile of cash forever, because that would be equivalent to sitting on a pile of treasuries forever. What they're threatening is that they're going to get the cash and they're going to get out of dollars entirely or something like that. Obviously, this was four years ago that this article was written, but we actually did pass that act. And there have been legal proceedings in suing Saudi Arabia and trying to get information about their involvement in 9-11 and stuff like that. And they did not dump treasuries on the world. That's something that didn't happen. But yeah, the main concern is that they'll spend the dollars on something else. And then that takes away the potential spending from other sources. The question is, is that a credible threat? Can they do this in such a way that it actually causes a problem? And I think you basically answered the question yourself, which is a lot of people were worried about it. And maybe a lot of people still are worried about it, even especially with China and Japan, who are larger holders of treasuries. What if China decides to dump all the treasuries, that kind of thing? The answer is that the Fed can buy up the treasuries, right? They're just converting one kind of dollar into another kind of dollar. Is that ever going to result in there being too much spending of dollars in the global economy? If there's enough of it, theoretically it could, but it doesn't seem like we're near a situation where that could end up being a problem anytime soon or anything like that. Go ahead, Austin. I'm very familiar with Saudi Arabia, so I have to watch myself that I don't go onto a rambling track. So I read the article. I don't think it's a good article. I think you should pick articles that are less easy to take down. I think you pick soft targets. But the article sort of says, oh, it's this big do or die thing happening in the 70s. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a long-standing relationship and I think the stakes are much lower than the article tries to imply, which journalists tend to do to, you know, make their article more interesting. And part of that is as shown, you know, they didn't follow through with this threat. The thing about the 75, uh, sorry, 750 million versus, you know, 115 million, I think that would be the difference between what's owned by the state of Saudi Arabia and what's owned by the royal family. 
the household Al Saud and the Saudi government are sort of, they're a Venn diagram that overlaps a lot. So that might be what's going on there. But yeah, I mean, generally, I think that the whole thing is a little bit overblown. I think what Neil said, they're sending us this oil for just paper. And I think this is where, you know, I've mentioned it before. I think you can actually do a version of the MMT explanation of money on a global scale where military force and coercion plays an important role. And so the House of Saud was backed by the British government until the British were no longer the great global power. Then they were backed by the Americans. And that happened with Roosevelt at the end of the Second World War. There's a famous meeting on an aircraft carrier of the Saudi king at the time and President Roosevelt and sort of setting up this deep strategic relationship of which, you know, oil sales and defense are really what's going on. It's really about we put aircraft carriers in the Persian Sea and the Red Sea to and protect Saudi Arabia and they send us oil and, you know, the money's paperwork about that deal. It's an interesting question. How much of the article is an exaggeration? How critical was the stuff that happened in the 70s and that particular deal that they made? I think for me, what's more interesting is the theoretical side of it. Why is it compelling that this stuff might be important, right? So I think that's a big part of it for me. And petrodollars, to me, they look like a microcosm of how the global economy as a whole works. People talk about, you know, everybody wants to save in dollars. And this is kind of one slice of that is the oil export are accumulating money and we're able to get the oil. Go ahead, Neil. At that time, they may have had something of us over a barrel in the sense that we needed their oil. At the present time, we produce more oil than we can use. Things are different. I think that's a good segue into the first quote from the article. The goal, neutralize crude oil as an economic weapon and find a way to persuade a hostile kingdom to finance America's widening deficit with its newfound petrodollar wealth. So the idea that crude oil, kind of as Neil pointed out, the idea that crude oil is used as an economic weapon, that can't really happen anymore because we are one of the world's biggest oil producers. We have our fracking and our shale oil, and that's not really an issue anymore. And I think the people were worried that because we could produce our own oil, that the petrodollar system would break down and that would cause problems for the US dollar in the global economy. And it didn't really pan out that way. And I think the petrodollar, if it ever was important, it's perhaps a lot less important today. But that isn't to say that maybe in the 1970s, you know, we had these oil embargoes going on that were kind of having a pretty big impact on our domestic economy. And it was a good idea to try to figure out a way to not have that be affecting us so strongly. Go ahead, Richard. In the article, they mentioned the Iran nuclear deal, and Trump got out of the Iran nuclear deal. And how does that affect the whole petrodollar system? Yeah, so I mean, Iran is also an oil exporter. Obviously, a lot of geopolitical stuff has changed in the last four years since this article was written. Obama was president back then and all of that. In terms of Iran, the more access to oil from different sources we have, the less dependent we are on any one particular source. As far as petrodollars and oil goes, I don't think the Iran stuff makes that much of a difference for us. There are other problems with the Iran nuclear deal and geopolitical problems there, but I don't think it's a problem for the dollar or a problem for oil or anything like that. Another way in which oil can be used as a weapon or this kind of arrangement can be used as a weapon is kind of called attention to in the article as well, which is we had this act in Congress and Saudi Arabia was threatening to sell all the treasuries and 
there were people who believed in that threat. And I don't know if this is the reason why the Obama administration tried to veto it or they did veto it and failed. I don't know if that's why they vetoed it or if they had some other motivation, but there were people who were taking this seriously. Like can Saudi Arabia get away with stuff, get away with participating in 9-11 or contributing to 9-11 because we have this arrangement with them where they can threaten us. Go ahead, Austin. Yeah, I just want to say, I don't think it's fair. Like they call them a hostile country there, right? And I just think that's just not accurate. This is, this was the Nader, the worst moment in US-Saudi relations was the oil embargo. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a tiff. It's, a, it's an argument within a very strong, long-standing relationship that's now lasted, you know, more the best part of a century. And this was the worst it got. And the second worst thing they did, which isn't in this article, is when they did the other thing where they said, okay, instead of holding back the oil, we're going to sell it really cheap, which they did in like 2013, 2014, when they flooded the market with really cheap oil to try and kill shale oil and also hurt Iran and Venezuela and all these other countries, right? So it was like they've got one big tool, which is the oil sprocket, and they can do two things with it. They can turn it off or they can open it, right? And so they've kind of done both those things now. And I think it's, you know, actually they have a lot less power. I mean, people believed it because they have bad ideas about money and debt. I think it's a pure case of people are scared of them. People who are scared of them selling the treasury is just not getting it. But also there's there's this thing where there's, there's a regional alliance system of which Saudi Arabia is a really important part. Saudi Arabia and the UAE kind of fund Egypt and do all this. So America sort of like oversees the whole thing, but Saudi Arabia kind of, you know, actually hands the money to people and, and keeps things moving in a lot of ways. And so there's this, this whole regional alliance structure which is like, it's not really optional for anybody. Everybody's super committed to it. And if you started pulling bits out of it, it's a Jenga tower and no one's going to do that. So I, I think that they, the sense of tension and distance between these governments is exaggerated. I think Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, you know, work with the US to just sort of run the region, right? And the UAE plays a sort of supporting role to Saudi Arabia. And the only sort of spoilers in that, uh, okay, I mean, I'm not going to start getting into too much geopolitics, but I just think that the the geopolitics and the real world issues of force dominate. And the Saudi government has, since the sort of 18th, since the 17th century even, I think, been a sort of player that's backed by outside powers and relied on that backing to sort of go against the interests and the wishes of, of other people in the region. And so the petrodollar the, the, spiking the price was, the, was them having to show some solidarity for fear of being totally isolated in the Arab world. Anyhow, it's all, and it's also about who's in charge, either Egypt or Saudi Arabia. Like Egypt used to be the dominant country and Saudi Arabia was the sort of poor cousin and now it's reversed. Um, and this is the war where Israel and Egypt were fighting and Saudi Arabia had to seem to sort of be on the side of the Arabs. And this was a gesture in that direction, but they quickly climbed down from it. And I'm just like, in terms of the geopolitical context, I think it's all half and puff. They're never going to blow the house down. You talked about it being kind of a Jenga tower, and I guess maybe some people were thinking that having this congressional act and looking into Saudi Arabia as a participant in 9-11, people were maybe worried that you're, by doing that, you're taking one of the pieces out of the Jenga tower or something like that. And it turned out maybe not so much, or maybe it wasn't the piece that would collapse the tower and the tower is still standing or something like that. But you also brought up the idea that people don't understand debt. So this is a good segue for the next quote from the article. Buying bonds and all that was a strategy to recycle petrodollars back into the U.S., said David Ottaway, a Middle East fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center in Washington. But politically, it's always been an ambiguous, constrained relationship. So when they talk about recycling the petrodollars back into the U.S., I'm going to tell you what they're imagining. They're imagining that 
okay, the United States sells these treasury securities to Saudi Arabia, they get their dollars back, and then they can spend those dollars. Another way of thinking about it is that by giving Saudi Arabia treasuries, what you're doing is you're paying them to hold on to their dollars. You're like, these are dollars, but they pay interest. So now you hold on to the dollars. And those dollars are now out of the economy. And that creates room for the government to spend more money into the economy. Because like I said before, if the if Saudi Arabia was merely holding on to stacks of cash that didn't pay interest, you have the same effect. What the treasuries are doing is they're giving them an incentive to save money that they wouldn't otherwise save. So the idea that you're that you have these specific dollars that you're trying to get back and recycle into the American economy, I don't think is exactly right. But the people who talk about petrodollars often talk about it working in that way. Go ahead, Derek. Well, it makes me wonder. Um, I was reading how, you know, prior to the great financial crisis in 2008, I mean, people weren't actually really that familiar with the idea that the Fed could just expand its balance sheet at will, just take tons, buy up tons of U.S. treasuries and all sorts of stuff. And so um, I guess I'm just wondering, like, we live, we sort of are looking at it from in a world from after that event. And before that occurred, um, is the willingness of foreign governments to hold U.S. debt, is that, was that sort of basically perceived to be serving a similar role? Like, we, we didn't really think that the Fed just taking a lot of this stuff would be an option. Um, so we're relying on all these governments to do it for us. But of course, now we may, more and more people are realizing that it may be an option to do that. Yeah, I think that's basically right. I, I don't know that there was a moment in the 2008 crisis where everybody suddenly realized how everything worked. I think there have always been people, especially those who are involved in central banking, who kind of understand their part of the picture, including the mechanics of how more private debt creates inflation and how people want to put their savings into treasury securities and that kind of stuff. So I think all of this has generally been understood by someone over the course of the entire thing. I don't know that that's new. Perhaps we're looking at it through a more enlightened lens or something that they wouldn't have had access to back then. But these two ways of describing it are kind of similar. If you're selling the treasuries to get the dollars back, it looks like it has a very similar effect because you get the dollars back so you can spend the dollars. The advantage to looking at it as, okay, now they're saving over here, that makes more room for spending, is that you don't necessarily have to have specific instruments that pull the dollars back out. Or if you're giving them a dollar substitute that's just as good as dollars and they can spend those things, you don't want to trick yourselves into thinking, oh, we've created more room to spend dollars, but those guys are just trading treasuries everywhere and selling treasuries for some other currency or something like that. Um, I guess it's an interesting question. What did people know previously about how this stuff worked? My sense is different people knew different parts of it, depending on what they were working on. Go ahead, Richard. I think I remember like eight or nine months ago that oil went down to like $10 a barrel or something. So how does that really affect like petrodollar system and possibly this winter with COVID? This weird thing happened in the spring after coronavirus hit where oil futures actually went negative for a few days. So that meant you had to pay people to take the oil off your hands. And the reason is that people had contracts to buy this oil, but they didn't have the necessary infrastructure to actually take delivery of the oil because you need all the stuff to store the oil and everything like that. And people had bought oil or people had promised to buy oil with the understanding that they would sell that promise off to someone else. And then they kind of got stuck. In terms of how it affects petrodollars, 
these oil exporters are not generally dealing in futures. They're actually selling the oil for money. So negative oil futures prices, it's more of a financial market issue than it is an issue. I think in my understanding is that it's more of a financial market issue than it is an issue with the actual real sellers of oil because they've already sold their oil and it's just a matter of everyone scrambling to figure out where it ends up and kind of playing hot potato on that end. Let's go to another quote from the article. The basic framework was strikingly simple. The U.S. would buy oil from Saudi Arabia and provide the kingdom military aid and equipment. In return, the Saudis would plow billions of their petrodollar revenue back into treasuries and finance America's spending. So again, the thing I would emphasize here is that what the Saudis are doing for us is they're accumulating dollars to make room for more dollars. The idea that they're plowing those self-same dollars back into the U.S. economy uh, or something like that, I, I think is not going to get us a complete understanding of, of how it works. And we could even go to the next quote. So this is about, um, it's talking about the recent collapse in oil in like 2012, 2013. While oil's collapse has deepened concerns that Saudi Arabia will need to liquidate its treasuries to raise cash, a more troubling worry has also emerged. The specter of the kingdom using its outsized position in the world's most important debt market as a political weapon, much as it did with oil in the 1970s. So Saudi Arabia never really had to liquidate their treasuries. And if they did, again, like we were saying before, it's not clear that it really would have been much of a problem. And in terms of them using their position to influence things, we can ask the question of whether that was happening under the Obama administration. And that's why Obama vetoed the bill that would allow for investigation into Saudi Arabia's participation in 9-11. So maybe we saw a little bit of some of that. I'm not sure. Let's go to David. Go ahead, David. Hey guys, I like this article and I like this topic. I just finished off reading a book that references these issues and it was called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I don't know if you guys have ever gotten into that one, but it's written from the point of view of an economist working for a major engineering firm, like a Halliburton. It's now a defunct engineering firm, but it was named Bain. And one of his jobs was to project growth rates in nations that were receiving foreign aid from the United States. So it was places that the United States was doing business with, lending money to in return for being involved with infrastructure projects. It's an interesting case with Saudi Arabia because the author of the book made the case that a lot of these projects were intended to entangle a smaller nation into the web of American influence by financing projects that the Americans knew would not, air quotes, pay for themselves with increased productive capacity and that the debts that they would accrue would make them dependent on the United States and that they would use the corrupting influence of U.S. debt to shape the leaders of the countries to align with us and the U.S. foreign policy aims. And also to, and this is sort of where it gets to the basic income aspect, is they essentially were creating work for American firms in foreign countries. And our relationship with Saudi Arabia seemed to have been sort of an exception to this, where there was a small, relatively impoverished country that had an enormously valuable resource to us. And we found ourselves sort of entangled in a codependent relationship with them, where we were dependent on their oil exports, and they became dependent on the imported goods and services and imported money, which they used to raise their standard of living. And it seems like Saudi Arabia may have been an exception to this, where because they were able to sell us oil and trade for our money, they were able to also employ U.S. businesses to bring money back into us, where we were very involved with developing Saudi Arabia into the modern nation that it is today. The book got into some scandalous stuff where the targets of these engineers were as much the leaders of the country as it was the projects.
projects that they were building. And it was very interesting when they discussed that Americans had access to resources that the Arab world did where they could not have traded for these things, you know, prostitutes and drugs and stuff like that, that the royal family wanted and that we could provide for them. And so the political entanglements with the royal family are pretty deep and they go beyond just swapping American dollars for oil. Yeah, I think those are some good points. And that book, The Confessions of an Economic Hitman, came out well before kind of the secret deal with Saudi Arabia was even made public. I haven't read the book, but it would be interesting to look at. And you also brought up the question of not only debt that is owed by the U.S., but also debt that is owed to the U.S. So there's debt relationships kind of going in every direction. And treasuries are one of them. That's debt owed by the U.S. So that's why people are worried that Saudi Arabia or other countries that hold a lot of U.S. treasuries might have some kind of leverage over us. Go ahead, Austin. A couple of quick things. One, Saudi Arabia is not a modern nation. It might have modern technology, but as a nation state, it's got you know a medieval monarchy. But just that's a side note. Oh, and also they have drugs and prostitutes in the Middle East. They've had them since before we had the number zero. The thing about the article, it said, you know, that they might use the debt as a weapon the way that they used petrol. And the difference is you can actually run out of petrol, right? So it's, it, it didn't work. It wouldn't be nearly as effective. Like in a, in, a, in a time when America was dependent on that energy import from Saudi Arabia, they had a real weapon saying that, oh, we've got all this debt is not a real weapon because, you know, the issue, U.S. government can always issue more debt. And what you're actually threatening to do is, are we going to threaten to free up all this money and increase the supply of liquid cash in the world, right? And that would have been a good thing in 2016 as from an American point of view, I think, overall, right? Like it would have been better to stimulate demand uh, for goods and services and keep the, the world economy humming. So it wasn't really a credible threat. America does it to other countries. Um, what the, Saudi Arabia tried to do to America, what America, through the IMF and the World Bank and unilaterally does to other countries is use debt as a political that's more effective because issues and the, the borrowing country doesn't even issue it but even then it's not as effective as it's sort of only effective because people think it is it's a sort of Tinkerbell effect where the leaders of these countries are scared to go against the US and sort of fooled by the realness of the debt and so you have example like Ecuador is um, a great example of a country that actually said well, we're not paying, right? That's it. We're not paying the debts. Wrote it all off. The IMF and the World Bank trashed their credit rating and they said, oh, you guys are, uh, are dead to us. We'll, you know, you're going to be pariahs in the, in the economy, in, in the global economy. And then eight years later, when instead of, instead of paying back the debt, they invested in their own economy and they built roads and they, you know, invested in state infrastructure and they made oil deals with China instead, right, which um, were damaged by Saudi Arabia flooding the market, but that's, that's another connection there. Then the IMF and the World Bank said, okay, cool, we'll, we'll come back and we'll do business with you again on better terms, right? So the debt threat is um, more, it's, 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 it's very not real for the United States when it's being threatened in the debt in its own currency. And it's not even that real for um, uh, other countries when they're being threatened by the U.S. if they can sort of, it depending, it all depends on the political context and, you know, other alliances and forces within the country as well. So, yeah, you can, you can run out of oil, you can't run out of money. 
those are some interesting points. And I like the question of, would it have actually been a good thing if Saudi Arabia had liquidated all their treasuries? And I think at that time, we were trying to figure out ways to generate more inflation in the economy. We were trying to figure out ways to kind of normalize interest rates and get them back to where we wanted them. And if a lot of treasuries are being dumped into the market, that kind of accomplishes both. So it, it, it really might have helped us. I mean, obviously, we, had, we, we could have gotten out of it with a basic income as well, as we talk about here. But if we are not able or don't understand how to do it ourselves, you know, Saudi Arabia or anyone dumping a lot of treasuries onto the market would help kind of push us in the right direction there. Let's go to Eddie. Go ahead, Eddie. I do want to point out that, uh, so Bethany asked, I think, really great questions about, you know, what actually happens if, um, you know, the treasuries, if, if uh, Saudi Arabia or China or anyone, you know, kind of goes through on one of these threats and, and sells all their treasuries and then, it's, and then also sells all of their dollars. And, you know, I think, you know, people have been talking about MMT a little bit. And I, I think one um, of the weaknesses of, of MMT is, is I think that it, it sort of, um, it sort of takes one weak argument, one straw man weak argument. Um, and then, which is that, um, you know, that, that deficits are bad, um, deficits cause inflation. Uh, period. And then they sort of replace it with the opposite uh, weak straw man argument, which is that deficits don't matter. Uh, you, you know, like, um, I mean, they, they usually add a little caveat, like, you know, they matter a little bit, but, you know, usually, you know, they speak as if deficits, you know, they're going the opposite direction. They're saying deficits just don't matter um, at all, or they don't, they don't matter. They almost don't matter that they, they don't matter, you know, at all. And then they usually have a little asterisk at, at the end about it. You know, I think with the a currency, you know, it's a little bit analogous to, to a bank. It's a little bit analogous to a bank where, you know, the rest of the world is, is saving in, in us dollars. And, you know, prior to the seventies, um, it was very much like a bank because, um, you know, those dollars were promised to be to be worth a certain amount of gold. And so, you know, other nations before the 70s, they could, you know, uh, take the dollars to the U.S. to the, to the U.S. and convert them into gold. Uh, you know, after the the gold shock in the in the 70s, then we, we broke that promise and said, you know, it's not it's not we're not going to convert it to gold anymore. Um, but, you know, we're going to maintain the stability of its value. And. So there is a you know possibility of something which is similar to a bank run. Um, you can sort of imagine this you know this you know it's sort of like a, a large theater with a with a small doorway, and so you know the the U.S. has about um, I think uh, I just looked up the figure I think about two or three trillion dollars worth of exports and two or three trillion dollars worth of imports uh, every year. So people are you know moving in and out of the dollar. Uh, constantly for trade purposes, they're also saving into the dollar with that seven trillion dollars worth of savings. And you know, similar to a bank, um, in normal conditions, this is perfectly fine. Um, it's more or less stable. Everything works. Um, you know, people can get in and out of that huge theater through a small doorway, and it's no problem. But in the case that you know a narrative begins building, and you know you start seeing uh, people begin worrying. The you know you know the entire world begins worrying about the 
the value of the dollar to the degree that that causes people to, you know, in the theater, that seven trillion dollars worth of saving to try to exit the dollar, you know, at once in a relatively short period of time, that would crash the demand for dollars. It would be like everybody trying to get out of the theater all at once. And the only people buying is that the three trillion dollars worth of, of, of U.S. exports that where people are in you know, the U.S. is selling goods, people want U.S. goods. And there's three trillion dollars per year worth of demand based on that, but that's not enough, you know, to 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 get everybody out if they all want to get out at, at once. The treasuries I'm talking about, the seven to seven trillion dollars. You know, the U.S. does have an infinite potential supply of U.S. dollars. They can print as many as they want, but they don't have an, an infinite demand uh, potential potential demand for for. For dollars, so generally, when a when a currency faces devaluation, um, one of the options is to use your reserves to buy the currency in the market. Um, and the U.S., if they were to be pushed to do that, they have about uh, I think it's seven hundred uh, eight thousand tons worth of gold, which in two thousand nineteen was worth about three hundred thirty billion dollars. 330 billion US dollars at current prices it's probably about 500 you know billion US dollars but you know I I, I don't think it would really be uh, enough if we were to face a full-on you know panic exit from the dollar and so I don't think that is you know it's not a guaranteed outcome but I think there is definitely a significant potential um, of U.S. dollar currency devaluation or the loss of reserve currency status. And, you know, I think that's the reason why, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, whenever these politics come up, then the, the Saudi Arabia or China, they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> if you guys, you know, don't make us happy, we're going to sell all our, all our dollars. I mean, at least in their minds, it is a, at least credible enough threat for them to actually to bring it up. Yeah, at least some people think it's a credible threat. Some of the people who are making the threat and then some of the people who are being threatened think that it's credible. And it's true that any currency, if for some reason the psychology shifts and everyone wants to get rid of it all at once, the currency will collapse. And that's true of gold as well, right? If everyone suddenly wanted to get rid of all their gold, then the price of gold would collapse. And you know, it's true of anything that people just don't want anymore. So the question is, and Eddie, you haven't really addressed this in any of your concerns, what kinds of mechanisms would lead people to have that psychology about the dollar. Now, there are certain things people believe about how the dollar works that some people believe, you know, the gold bugs and whoever, that might cause them to sell the currency. But there's no kind of like, my feeling is that you've got monetary policy that's going to push back in the opposite direction of wherever market forces push. The question is, what's going to kind of dislodge us from the status quo? And you can ask the same question of gold too, like enough people want to invest in gold and hold it as an asset that you can't really imagine the price of gold just kind of collapsing suddenly. You know, it hypothetically could, but it's probably not at this point. And the dollar is actually being actively managed. So it's even less likely to collapse compared to gold. If everybody in the world threatens to dump their treasuries at once, what does that even mean? Is that a symptom of something or what's going on there? With a bank run, you can kind of understand it because the bank is under pressure. There's some kind of pressure that the bank is facing and then everybody wants to get their money out before it's too late or something like that. You don't really see that with a currency like the US dollar and the United States. I certainly agree with 
with your point, your kind of counterpoint to Austin, that the United States government can run out of dollars in the sense that if you define a dollar to be a claim ticket for a certain standard amount of stuff, the government can run out of capacity to issue tickets that claim that amount of stuff, right? They get to a point where if they issue too many, it's not going to be able to claim that amount of stuff anymore. So in that sense, the government can run out of dollars. So oil is something that you can run out of and dollars are something, you know, your own sovereignly issued currency is something you can run out of too. Let's go to David. I think that what the trouble is, I think what people, what the worry is, I, I think is if people began to dump these treasuries, what you would see is you would see, a, you say in 2016, it would be good and bad. And we have this, we have these metaphors about the doors of the theater. And I think you would see this, this gradual opening of doors. And those doors would open and close slowly because they're constrained by real constraints of what does the U.S. offer to export? What can we produce for export that the export market wants that will increase the immediate demand to use dollars? And the result of dumping dollars, I think, would be almost the same thing that you see with the Fed and their very loose fiscal policy is you'll see asset inflation. I think that's what happens is you see asset prices sort of decoupled from the rest of the economy. And I think that if it was to happen quickly, it would have a negative effect on the economy, but not everybody would lose. Some people would win from that. They would become people who control assets uh, and control resources would become more wealthy because of it relative to people who are earning dollars at sort of a more fixed income rate. I think you're right. If there's any kind of sudden shock or anything, that's going to be disruptive and it'll take a while to adapt to that. In terms of an asset price inflation or an asset bubble, obviously, if everybody's selling treasuries, treasuries are an asset and the price of that asset will be going down. So the question is, what are they switching into? If they're not holding treasuries anymore, what are they buying? And maybe the price of whatever that is might go up. Maybe, as Eddie likes to say, it could be gold or something like that. Maybe it could be another currency. But something important to keep in mind that maybe doesn't come up a lot when we think about this kind of thing is that treasuries are often used as collateral in borrowing in the financial sector. So a lot of the asset purchases, a lot of the asset holding that people have is funded by borrowing that uses treasuries as collateral. So if the price of treasuries collapses and the yield on them increases by a lot, you're not going to be able to roll over that borrowing to hold your other assets. That creates a situation where people are forced to sell their assets because they can't fund the holding of those assets anymore. And then you have a forced selling of assets kind of across the board. So rather than an asset bubble, my sense is that what you would see is an asset price collapse if the price of treasuries collapse. Because it's not just that there's some amount of money that's out there and it needs to figure out where to go. It's that money actually gets destroyed uh, and, and the markets um, stop being liquid. People are not able to find buyers for the assets they want to sell and that kind of thing. And we saw this a little bit in March when COVID first hit, there was a huge liquidity squeeze where everybody suddenly wanted to start selling their treasuries. And so, so we can kind of imagine what would happen in the scenario because it, it kind of did happen in March. Uh, everybody tried to sell all their treasuries and the price of treasuries collapsed and the market, the, not only the price, it's not just that there was a market and there, was, there were prices in the market, the market itself collapsed. You couldn't sell your treasuries. So that's when the Fed's stepped in and said, we'll buy as many treasuries as the market wants to sell going forward. And they started buying other assets too, right? That was able to unfreeze all these other financial markets that used treasuries as collateral for the borrowing. So I don't know that you would necessarily see asset bubbles as a result of people dumping treasuries. I think you'd see something a little bit more complex and something more towards like the financial markets breaking down, that kind of thing. Let's go to Neil. 
I basically disagree. The Federal Reserve can print all the money it wants. It can buy up all the treasuries anybody wants to dump. So it does. Okay, so what? The only thing that, 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 that can ruin us is, is if trade gets affected. If for some reason people will not uh, buy, uh, will not sell us goods, then we got a problem. As long as they're willing to sell us goods for dollars, who cares who owns who, how, how, whether it's on the balance sheet of the Fed or it's held by China or something? Why should it matter? I just don't see it. Yeah. Now, there is a time, time lag before the policies are implemented sometimes. But the, I think the Federal Reserve has, has, has learned. And the next, and if it, if it actually happened, all that would happen is a giant buy up of, 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 of the treasuries being sold by the Fed. Why should that, that mean anything? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that is exactly what we saw happen in March. The Fed said, oh, nobody's buying treasuries. We'll buy them all, right? There was a little bit of a lag there and everybody panicked, but it ended up being no big deal, right? Because the Fed just stepped in and bought all the treasuries that everyone wanted to sell. And then everything was fine after that. Fine, not like things aren't fine in the world, but you know, the entire global financial sector did, didn't collapse. Things just kept working as normal. Let's go to Austin. Go ahead, Austin. Hey, uh, two things. I want to push back on what you and Eddie uh, were saying about that the U.S. can run out of dollars. I don't think that's a good way of describing it. I mean, it, it, it is a little bit getting into the semantics. Like, we both understand that there's a problem if you print too much, right? Like, that there's an upper limit of how much you can successfully print. But what happens when you hit that limit isn't that you run out of money. You can still print more. What happens is that you um, that all of them become worthless, including the ones you've already issued. Right. So it's not an, it's not a matter of the supply drying up. It's a matter of an oversupply. Right. Which I think is an important um, distinction. Um, and the other thing and then but I but I did want to sort of follow up with what you were saying in response to Eddie about what would cause that run on the U.S. dollar. And I think we have to ask, well, why is the U.S. dollar so important in the first place? And this is where we get to, you know, non-economic, non-financial stuff like First of all, there's a bunch of stuff that people want to buy in U.S. dollars. And the fact that, you know, oil is one of them, that's important. But military equipment, Apple computers, you know, uh, all of that stuff, as long as that's still being sold in U.S. dollars, that's going to create some demand uh, for U.S. dollars, even the oil that America produces and, and, you know, refines and so on. Right. Like, so as long as there's stuff that people want to buy in U.S. dollars. And secondly, as long as the U.S. is the dominant military power. So. For example, if you want to get a boat through the Suez Canal, you pay in dollars, right? Like there's a fee that you've got to pay in dollars. And if you, um, uh, and, and the, you know, and the, uh, not to mention the fact that it's, it's the official sort of reserve currency used by global institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and stuff all use it. So the, what would have to happen for, um, and, you know, people always throw, throw these examples of, um, of, of hyperinflation when you, when you, as a, as a sort of, Boogeyman, the, the examples they use are Weimar, Germany, and Zimbabwe. And what you have there is a situation where there's general political crisis as well. It's not just a matter of them printing money. They're in the middle of this broader international and domestic political strife. So I think for the US dollar to have that kind of, you know, um, total collapse, that hyperinflation, you would need to see a whole bunch of stuff change both within and outside the actual, um, you know, money markets and financial markets, you need to see changes in the real economy, right? Like no one wants to buy exports from America anymore. And 
um, uh, you'd have to see change in the balance of power. Let's remember the global currency was the British pound when the British empire was the most powerful um, international force. Now the US is the most powerful international force and that makes that's why the US dollar is the thing. It comes back to those aircraft carriers uh, sitting in the Persian Gulf off Saudi Arabia's coast. I certainly think that's part of the story. I think I think part of the story about why the US dollar is so prominent, why it's the world reserve currency is partly a historical accident. Um, you know, after World War One, World War Two, we ended up with all the world's gold. So we, the previous kind of international standard currency was gold and we controlled that. Um, and then the dollar kind of um, boot, bootstrapped its you know, dominance off of, off of our gold position. And then nothing has really happened that's kind of dislodged us. There hasn't been any major event that made someone else the kind of financial superpower. Before World War I, it was England, right? And the Bank of England, and they had a lot of the gold and they had all the gold markets and a lot of the financial markets and everything. Uh, and then after the World Wars, it shifted to the United States for obvious reasons. Um, I don't know that, I mean, to some extent, you could say that we're maintaining that position through military power. Certainly we have, the United States has the largest military in the world and by far, and, and we use that. It's not clear to me that that's a big factor in, in the position of the dollar in the global economy, but you certainly can't ignore it. it it's, it's still important. As far as hyperinflation, the hyperinflation boogeyman, uh, as it were, goes, I agree with you that hyperinflation is a very specific thing, and it's not the same thing as normal inflation. Hyperinflation is going to happen. You said, you know, it could be uh, changes in balances of power and political stress and that kind of stuff, but it's also what it boils down to is ultimately, anytime you have hyperinflation, the government or the currency issuing authority is making a promise that it can't keep. They're committing to a certain real level of spending that's beyond the level of the capacity. And they're printing money for that purpose. They're printing money as a way of reaching to try to meet this commitment that's unmeetable, right? And that's when you have hyperinflation. All the scenarios you listed are examples of that. But if we wanted to, without any of those scenarios, the United States could decide to cause hyperinflation. All we have to do is say, okay, I want a basic income that allows people to buy the economy's productive capacity twice over. And I'll keep raising the basic income until I hit that point. You'll never hit that point. You'll just get hyperinflation, right? So hyperinflation is, is more general than just the specific things you said, but the specific things you said are kind of examples of that. And in terms of Austin, what you said about the United States running out of dollars, it depends on how you think about it, right? If you imagine that the United States government faces a hard price stability constraint, then it comes to the point where it just can't spend anymore, or it can't spend at a higher rate than it's already spending, because doing so would violate that constraint. And I think MMTers are a little bit looser with it. They say, well, inflation isn't such a big deal unless it's hyperinflation, or maybe we have an inflation target that's at a certain level. And by the way, what I'm saying applies to if you have an inflation target, the inflation target doesn't have to be zero. If the inflation target is 2%, if you spend a little bit more than what your economy can handle, you'll miss that target. You'll go over that target, right? So whatever your target is, 0%, 2%, 8%, or whatever, there's a limit to government spending. There's a hard limit to government spending if you're seeing that as a constraint that you have to follow. The government can run out of dollars. Look, I agree that it's what, when these the governments that are listed, they're making these impossible promises. But what I would say is you have to look. The governments generally don't do that unless there's a, either they're very badly run or they are in some profoundly difficult political position, right? Which is often to do with um, foreign debt denominated. Like, so the promise that they're trying to make sometimes is we're going to pay you back in either gold or US dollars or some thing that we don't have 
So we're going to try and print money to buy that. And then the more we print, the less it buys and down the hole you go. Right. Um, so that's like, and I, like, I agree that there is a, there's an upper limit on what can be spent, but it's just a matter of the phrasing of whether, you know, to think about it, to try and communicate these ideas, I think it's easier to sort of point out that like you can always print another dollar gets to the point where doing that has, is a bad idea. But what, but you have to understand the nature, to understand the nature of those constraints and, you know, the, the, to bust the sort of the household fallacy, right? Like the really dominant, the, the household fallacy is the idea, you know, that the government's like a household. If it spends more than it takes in an income, that's its limit, right? That, that ultimately you, you'll never escape um, the trap if you spend more than you, you bring in, which isn't true for governments. And that's framed as, you know, where are you going to get the money? You're running out of money can't have nice things, there's no money, right? Um, so I think it's important to us to, to break that thinking. And to just, you know, it, it is a linguistic thing, but I prefer, I prefer to you know, point out that there's a, any number of dollars that the US government, including the Federal Reserve and the government here, wants to spend, it can, right? It probably shouldn't at some point. It definitely shouldn't at some point, but um, it's different to the idea that, you know, you're gonna go to the vault where there's piles of gold and there's no gold left, right? Yeah, it's certainly different than going to a vault and seeing that there's no gold left. And I liked what you said about hyperinflation. Governments generally are not going to make impossible promises unless they're forced to. So that generally kind of comes comes back to politics as well. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. We could cause hyperinflation if we wanted to, but that would be really dumb and we wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of, of running out of money, yeah, I mean, like we're talking about how much can a government promise? And I like the way Bob Hockett and Aaron James talk about money as being a form of a promise. So the question is, what are you promising? So you're not running out of a physical thing, but maybe you're reaching the limit of what you can promise. And I think that's a very real thing. I don't like it when people say the government can't run out of dollars. I like it when people say the government can promise only so much, or the government has the capacity to promise and to fulfill promises more than what they're doing today or something like that. But just saying the government can't run out of dollars, is kind of a silly thing to say. Uh, and I don't think it helps the argument. And similarly, you know, the MMT people talk about the household fallacy. I don't really think think that's a very good argument as well, largely because the government is like a household. Households can spend more than they take in too. They can accumulate debt. Homeowners have mortgages, right? And some people's debt keeps going up and up and up. The difference with the government is that they have a different capacity to accumulate debt. They might be able to accumulate more and more debt perpetually into the future, that kind of thing. But households and governments, it's not like they're two different things. They lie on a continuum. The more you can borrow, the more maybe you're like a government. And the less you can borrow, the more maybe you're like a household that really needs to manage its budget or something like that. I don't like, oh, there are a lot of kind of MMT-isms, I like to call them, um, that really kind of rub me the wrong way. And government can't run out of money is one of them. And the governments are not like households, or there's this household fallacy. That's another one of them as well. I might write an article about MMT-isms at some point where I just kind of list them all, but those are two of the big ones. Go ahead, Bethany. First, I would say in terms of people's understanding, though, I do feel like the household fallacy is trying to get at something. And Maybe if you have an even deeper understanding, you can see how there isn't an association between a household and the government. But first, people have a sense that, yeah, that, that there's kind of a zero-sum nature to money. And in fact, if you borrow it, you end up paying even more because you have to pay it back with interest. And like, it just seems like there's something fundamentally different there 
in terms of what's good for the government. So another way to put this is like, there's a sense in taking on debt in your own life in a household that you're borrowing against the future, that you're making the future harder. And like, you're gonna have to pay back more in the future. And maybe that sometimes makes sense, but it doesn't always, and you should be careful about it and all that kind of stuff. And it just seems like the future present trade-off is not a big part of government debt in the same way. And so I don't know exactly what you'd want to call it, if not the household fallacy, but it does seem like people's intuitions about taking on credit or debt come from their own experience and that those are fundamentally different from how the government works. There's a deeper way you could think about your experience, but for most households, it's not the case that they can basically get more money in their lives by perpetually having credit that they never have to pay back. Like I don't, that may be possible, but it's not actually very common. So it's not how people are thinking about it. I think there are some rhetorical advantages to the message that households and governments don't work the same way, but there are also some disadvantages too. And I feel like you can kind of sidestep the whole issue by really emphasizing that money is a promise. You're promising that people will be able to claim something. And then you can say, well, what is the capacity to promise? Because obviously what's special about the government is that we're using their debt as money, right? Their debt is everyone else's money. You could say that the base money of the economy is a form of government debt that we're using as money. And then that's the money we spend. And the treasuries are the money that we save, right? But other people's debt is kind of used as money, just not in such an extreme way. You know, if you owe me something, I put that on the asset side of my ledger. I'm just not setting prices in it and that kind of thing. It's not the standard token that the economy uses to spend. I think there are better ways to make this point about what the government can do and what the constraints actually are on the government. And I know MMT sometimes acknowledges some of these constraints. Sometimes they don't. But just to say like, oh, the government can't run out its own dollars that it issues, or the government is not like a household that doesn't have to balance its budget. Talk to me about what the constraints are. And then I think you're going to get a lot more people listening to you and taking you seriously. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's good to talk about what the constraints are. But I also feel like if you're talking to someone just casually, or if you're a politician, it's really hard and, and the, like, to get the understanding across. And the first key thing to get across is that it's not the same as how you think about your own finances. And that's not typical. Like that, even that step is not typical. Like you watch a normal presidential debate, like the sense of it is that like you're borrowing against the future, et cetera, et cetera. Like the public discourse hasn't even gotten that far. So I, I don't know exactly the best way to do it, but I, I think launching into something really nuanced and like difficult to understand, obviously, and not that that's what you're trying to do, but, but I, I do think that like just jarring people out of, of, like even if they don't really understand it, if they get that it's different from the way they think about their own money, that's at least a start. And that's how I usually understand people trying to have these conversations. Um, but I, I wanted to, you can respond to that, but I also had a different point, which is much, I think much smaller, but um, we were talking about why the US is the world's reserve currency and maybe it's historical accident, et cetera. And I was just wondering like how much of that is the fact that it is fairly well managed and like it is fairly stable. I mean, maybe that's kind of like necessary, but not sufficient because a lot of other countries also do that and they're not the world reserve currency, but if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be. <laughs> so I guess that, that kind of relates to Austin's point about political stability and institutions working well and things like that. But I just want to throw that in the mix. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If our institutions failed to manage our currency properly, then if we were bad enough for long enough, then another currency would kind of come in and take the dollar's place. But if you've got the United States managing their currency well, and you've got all these other countries managing their currency well, then there's not really a reason to switch over to have a new world reserve currency. You've already got something that works and there's no reason to leave. So yeah, there needs to be something that kind of dislodges us. And it could be even a country paying out a basic income. That could be part of what dominates the dollar in terms of having an effective currency. Is it kind of like a network effect with the reserve currency where once you're dominant, you kind of 
can't maintain that for a while because everyone has to switch at once or like it's beneficial for everyone to be coordinated around the same reserve currency. So it's not like it's impossible, but it seems like it has one of those network effects going on. That's exactly right. It is a network effect. So you need a little bit of like escape velocity to escape that network effect. There needs to be someone else who's offer offering something enough better that they'll switch over. So right, nobody's going to leave Facebook unless, or you're not going to have everybody switch from Facebook to another alternative platform unless some Facebook does something really wrong or someone else does something that really Facebook can't compete with and they start building their own network and, and sucking away Facebook's network. Same kind of thing. Go ahead, Eddie. So I wanted to respond to a few things. The first with Alex's question about, you know, what would the incentive be for people to, to kind of panic exit out of the dollar? You know, I think as with many things in financial markets, the key driver here is that there is a self-reinforcing dynamic going on, you know, similar to the bank run. If you have a, you know, pre-FDIC, if you have a bank that is kind of normally run uh, on a normal reserve ratio, just like every other banks, but a narrative builds enough that people begin to worry about their deposits at the bank and they begin to go and withdraw their deposits. Uh, you know, simply the narrative itself uh, will drive the actions of people to withdraw money from the bank, which will actually cause the problem which the narrative is worrying about in the first place, because the bank in the first place, even when it's normally run, does not have enough money to, you know, to hand out to all of its depositors. And so, so you know, a certain percentage of the depositors go on the same day, say 10%, 20%, and try to withdraw their money, then they will find that, you know, they've created the problem that they're worried about, that they cannot get their money out, um, even though they would be able to if this narrative did not exist. If everybody were just going out about normal business, it would be fine. But if, you know, 20% are worried and try to get it all out at the same time, uh, they won't be able to, and the, and the bank will collapse in that, in that situation. Um, you know, similarly with the dollar, uh, the incentive is a self-reinforcing one where if people are worried about the value of the dollar dropping and the dollar begins to drop, then that causes even more people to worry about, you know, the, the dollar dropping and, and even more people to, to get out of the dollar or to, to short the dollar. Um, you know, nations are a little bit um, kind of, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily trying to maximize profit, but they still are susceptible to some degree to the same incentive because, um, you know, the people running those institutions, they do not want to be kind of, um, you know, in their country and, and the, you know, it's, it's wide knowledge. Everybody knows how much, um, you know, dollars they have in their central banks and they don't want to be there. And if the dollar, you know, drops by half or, or, or loses a large amount of value, then the people of that country will be angry at their officials um, for, you know, for losing so much money by having it parked in, in, in U.S. dollar treasuries. Um, Neo brought up the point that, you know, if people exit the treasury, then, you know, the Fed can just pr print money and buy the treasury. So what's the problem? Um, and the only problem is that, you know, those people exiting the treasuries, they will also be exiting the dollar. And they will also be watching the Fed print all those dollars. So they'll be exiting the dollar um, even more. So the, 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 the problem is that the value of the dollar drops, um, which is, I think, what everybody's kind of getting at from different directions. Um, you know, again, the Fed, we can't run, the Fed, the government can't run out of a supply of dollars 
but they can run out of demand for dollars. They can be printing dollars and people don't want them as much. So the value of the dollar um, drops. <clears throat> um, the third thing that I wanted to say is that I think it's important, it's very important to uh, distinguish between an inflationary dynamic and what I call a, a hyperinflationary dynamic, which is associated with like Weimar and um, Zimbabwe. Um, in an inflationary dynamic, I would say the classic example is the US in the 70s. And it's you know, associated with a very hot economy where spending is very high, capacity utilization is, is very high, and you're, you're, you're running up against the uh, you know, constraint of the supply of, of goods. And that is causing inflation. I would say that um, you know, inflation is too much goods demand chasing too little capital. And I would say that hyperinflationary uh, dynamics are actually the opposite. It's generally uh, a capital flight issue. And so it's generally actually a, an issue of too much um, capital um, chasing too little uh, good demand. And so, um, you know, even though I, I would, even though I think there is a significant potential um, there's a chance of, you know, the U.S. dealing with dollar devaluation in the future. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised that I would say that the most important thing for the, for the U.S. to do is to institute a monetary basic income and to print more dollars and to give them to consumers. And the reason it's important for, to do that is that if you look at capacity utilization, it's at 71%. Um, you know, we're not going to run into the, the number type one inflationary dynamic, but, um, you know, you need to get dollars into the hands of consumers so that they drive up goods demand. And when you drive up goods demand, then the capital, the financial capital actually has somewhere productive to go. They can actually take that financial capital, those 0%, you know, you know, lending rates or very low lending rates and, and put that capital into more factories, uh, more businesses, um, things like that, uh, which are productive. Um, and because we have a, in a you know, real investment right now that is capped by limited um, consumer spending ability, because of that, that is actually why you have this enormous over accumulation of financial capital that has nowhere to go. If it goes to treasuries, you know, the interest rate is very low. If it goes to stocks, the PE ratio is very high. If it goes to real estate, same thing, the yield is, is very low. It's got nowhere to go. It's driving up all the prices and that you know, increases the possibility of these volatile flows in and out. I noticed that you brought up the term monetary basic income. I just want to plug next week's discussion where we're going to be talking about monetary policy versus fiscal policy and where basic income fits in, whether you can think about it as a form of monetary policy, as a form of fiscal policy. There's different ways of doing it, that kind of thing. So next week's discussion is going to be all about that. I like that you want to distinguish between inflationary dynamic uh, and hyperinflationary dynamics. I think there's really kind of three dynamics. There's inflation that's at the target, whatever it is, maybe it's 2% or something like that. That's basically equivalent to a 0% inflation dynamic. You're keeping it where you want it to be. Then there's inflation rising above where your target is. And that's too much money chasing too few goods until the prices equilibrate and then you're back on target again. And then the hyperinflation dynamic again is, as I was saying before, it's when you're making a promise that 
you can't keep, partly maybe due to political pressure a lot of the time. In terms of your other ways of distinguishing between regular inflationary dynamics and, and hyperinflationary dynamics, I think there's some truth to some of that stuff that you said. But I also think at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, hyperinflation is about just that reaching for an impossible goal and overpromising and just continuing to further overpromise because you don't have a choice. You're, you're committed to that. Whereas uh, regular inflation or off-target inflation is about, you know, maybe you promise too much and you miss your target, but then it's back on track again. And then your on-target inflation is just normal. Things are working the way you want them to work. Now, the problem with your scenario of everybody exiting treasuries, I agree with your point that you made to Neil, that the problem isn't that they're exiting treasuries per se. The problem is that they're exiting the dollar in general. By exiting the treasuries, you're saying, okay, I don't want to save in dollars anymore. I want to save in something else. So you sell the treasuries you sell for dollars and then you sell the dollars. Obviously, if everybody exited treasuries and just held on to dollars as if they were treasuries, then it wouldn't be a problem. And maybe you see some of that when we pay interest on reserves today. I mean, I guess until coronavirus hit, when you're paying interest on reserves, bank reserves are then starting to act a little bit like treasuries if you're a bank. So then you might hold on to regular dollars that aren't treasuries. But the problem is that you're getting rid of the dollars entirely. The dollars become hot potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. And the Fed buying treasuries isn't going to solve that because they're just replacing one kind of dollar with another kind of dollar. That's not going to solve the problem of people exiting treasuries if they're exiting the dollar entirely. The problem is that I don't see this kind of self-reinforcing dynamic materializing with the dollar because not only does the Fed push back on its own with monetary policy, but people in the market, when the dollar gets cheaper, they see that as an opportunity to buy the dollar. So you have these monetary policy effects that push back against the dollar collapsing. And you also have just natural market behavior, market psychology that pushes back against the dollar collapsing. If you want this kind of self-reinforcing cycle of people selling the dollar more and more and more, you have to create a scenario in which the value of the dollar going down is a sign that it will go down further. And then it becomes a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop. But you haven't described for me a scenario in which that is the case, that, that the dollar uh, losing some value um, will cause people to worry that it will lose more and then, and then want to get out of the dollar even more. Like, I just don't see that happening. Let's go to Austin. I want to go back to the household thing and the idea that governments and households are on a spectrum. It's like, yes, but they're right at other ends, opposite ends of that spectrum. And along the way, certain things happen, right? So if you're an ordinary household, not a Donald Trump um, you know, expert in, 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 he's an expert in bankruptcy. So he's kind of an expert at spending money that he doesn't have and, and you know, uh, spending beyond his means and getting away with it. So very wealthy people can pull it off to a certain extent. Um, but an ordinary household, yes, they can take on debt, but that debt is, is calculated, what the debt that they're able to take on is calculated based on their income, right? Um, so like the, the mortgage that you get, is you're only going to get that mortgage if you have a job right? And you can say, I'm going to be able to make those payments, which is, you know, and a household doesn't have a money printer. Household doesn't have a mint or a central or its own central bank. It can't then say, well, don't worry, I'm going to, I'm just going to print the money to pay this week's mortgage payment, which is precisely what the US government's doing at the moment, right? And, and Australia, all the government, a lot of governments in the world are doing right now is just printing money to pay uh, or to purchase debts, right? Um, so I think that's an important distinction. And the reason it's important to say that the government can't run out of dollars is because people are constantly saying it's about to, right? Like the discourse is we're about to go broke. We're about to run out of money. The government's spending all this money. The debt repayments are going to overwhelm us. We have to, you know, 
burn the poor or, or, or eat the rich or, or make some sacrifice that's going to have real-world consequences because we're about to go broke, we're about to run out of money. Panic, panic, panic. That's a standard discourse. And a way to disrupt that is you turn around and you say, well, no, if we, we can't run out of money. That's not how it works, right? And then people will go, what, you're crazy? But they hear it a few times and it starts the conversation, right? Whereas if you say, um, well, yes, we can run out of dollars, but the limit's a little bit further off than you think. I don't think it catches in people. Like people don't get how big a point you're making, right? Like the size of the critique can be kind of disappear. Um, and while we're, I just like also think that the role of uh, the role of coercive and and authority, the role of coercive power and authority, I think, is really closely tied to you know the currency. So like, take the West Bank, right, which is nominally not Israel, but they use shekels because they're subject to Israeli military power. Now it doesn't matter how well the Palestinian Authority managed if it came up. Well, we're starting a central bank. We're going to have you know, our own currency. We're going to pay it out, you know, Palestinian dinars. And this is what we're going to pay our, our staff in. And we're going to manage it really well. And, you know, I don't know, we've got a, we've got a stack of gold or whatever that we're going to um, use against that. No one's going to take that seriously. No one's going to take that seriously because they don't have sovereign power, because they don't have military control of their own territory. If the Israelis wanted, they could come and take the gold. If the Israelis wanted, they could come and smash the printing press. Right? It's like the, the thing I talked about in Australia, we drive on the left-hand side of the road. And part of that's because, um, you know, we all agree to it. But we all agree to it because it's what the government said we would do, right? And the government has final control. And if you drive on the other side of the road, you know, a cop will pull you up and say, what are you doing? And charge you a fine in Australian dollars. And if you say, no, I'm paying that in Palestinian dinars, they're going to go, okay, well, we're throwing you in jail, right? Like, the backstop for all of this is military force. And I, I don't think, and I think the US dollar... Um, and it, the links to not just having a big military, but having that military deployed, right? Having that military all over the place, having that military in, in Korea and Japan and the northern bit of Australia and at the Suez Canal and in Singapore and all of these like strategic places, like fundamentally, it doesn't give the you, it doesn't like immediately and instantly back up the US dollar, but it underpins a lot of those promises. Right, like if you promise, okay, we're going to ship you the gold. Well, we have to be able to get it to you, don't we? We have to put it in a boat and it has to get across the water and not get sunk by, you know, uh, a Japanese U-boat or whatever, right? So, like, I think the, the the U.S. and this is and this 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 is why it relates back to the article because Saudi Arabia's use of the U.S. dollar to sell um, uh, oil, Saudi Arabia's close relationship with the U.S. This is one more example of you know. A pro one promise is if you have U.S. dollars, you're going to be able to buy oil, right? And that in turn is backed up by the fact that Saudi Arabia is going to be able to export it. It's going to export it through waterways that are controlled by the U.S. Navy. If you have uh, anything that's sellable for U.S. dollars, you're going to be able to buy oil because you can buy the U.S. dollars. And I think you're right that all of this political and military stuff does matter. It does have an effect. 
I'm just skeptical that it's the primary reason that the dollar is in the position that it's in. And as far as the household doesn't have a money printer, I would say that it does. Money printing is just another term for borrowing. It's just a matter of how much money households can print versus how much money the government can print. And, you know, this is important. People do go around saying the government's about to run out of dollars. And I think that's a problem. But the answer is not, we can't run out of money. That's kind of a child's answer. It's like, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, no, you know, and then yes, no, yes, no. That's not a real discussion. I certainly wouldn't say that we can run out of dollars, but the limit is further away than you think. I think that's kind of a weak statement. I and mean, that's not the argument that I would make. I would say, you know, well, what are the constraints on government spending? What allows them to spend money? What does a dollar represent? If it represents a promise, what determines the capacity for them to make that promise, for them to spend dollars uh, that have value in the economy? So I think you can kind of go back and forth with this childlike arguing and bickering that that MMT proponents often kind of fall into, but you can also you can also step above that and you can do it in a way that's compelling. You don't have to say like, oh no, it turns out we have a little more room to spend more dollars. There's more to it than that. Like you said, there's something much deeper going on and you can tap into that without getting reactive, I think. I still feel, Alex, like your approach, and this is, again, more of like if you're in politics or something, but I still feel like your approach misses the initial value that Austin was talking about, about giving people the basic idea that the way they think about their own finances is really very different than how they should be thinking about the government's choices. I think saying it doesn't work. Basically, you're just saying the government's finances don't work the way your finances do, or you know something like that. It's helpful for them if you can convince people of that. I agree that like you would follow it up with something more nuanced than like can't run out of money, can run out of money. You know, like that's that's silly. Obviously, then you get into the way that it's different from people. But I feel like your understanding of how of like what credit means and maintaining that a dollar claims a certain amount of stuff is a kind of credit. Like that's very like deep and abstract for, or like at least it's kind of like abstract and difficult to grasp. So I wouldn't like start with that because like I said before, that similarity is like at many layers farther along in understanding, whereas people in politics, something might be just trying to get across something very simple. That's very already like very controversial. And it's very natural to think about money in the way that we think about it for ourselves. But that said, I like, I do agree that talking about what the constraint is, is persuasive because it doesn't, it makes it sound like you aren't just like too unrealistic or kind of like, it, it doesn't seem plausible to people that there would be no constraint. Like that also is important to address. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable point. I'm just wary of starting with a statement that's going to like, the first thing you say is going to get the person to say, okay, this is a person I don't need to listen to. Let's go to Derek. That was all very interesting. I mean, I, I like Bethany's point there um, about stressing the difference um, that's, that's, and stressing the constraint. That's helpful. I guess I just briefly wanted to comment on maybe uh, what Austin was talking about and trying to figure out what backstops money and what backstops all the ultimate currency and that sort of thing. And I, I guess I just sort of wanted to point out that like people often talk about the US, you know, as the global reserve currency, like it's something special. And I think that really sort of depends on your perspective. I mean, I think it's true that the world needs a global reserve currency. Someone has to do it. Uh, it's also true that most people in the world aren't Americans, and there's lots of other countries. Diff there's other, there's different currencies in in the world that uh, are their consumers are doing okay, even though they're not citizens in a country that uses the global reserve currency. So if we're going to make a case that like the U.S.'s um, unique military position of influence or their standing after the wars was responsible for the global reserve, they're having a, a certain people are started using them as the standard. That's fine. Um, but it's also what, what, what we consider the ultimate backing of something depends on what our priorities are, right? And I think Australia does just fine. Um, they have their own dollar and they can manage it. They're not the top military in the world. Um, there's a lot of countries in the world that aren't, don't have a lot of military influence and 
make up with that in other ways. So I really, I really do think it is helpful to separate the hierarchy of money versus just some sort of hierarchy of political power or military power, because they're they're very different. And it's not clear to me that the the money hierarchy depends on the military one in order in order to function. I really think it's actually it's important that someone is sort of managing the money hierarchy, but it's it's not a <laughs> It's not important that we happen to be the ones that are in that position. I don't think that's actually very important at all. Yeah, I think that's right. You do have this hierarchy of military power and you have a hierarchy of money. And there are some ways in which they interrelate, but it's not like a one-to-one mapping between the two. Go ahead, Austin. Well, I don't stop with the point, oh, the government can't run out of money. What I always try and get to as quickly as possible, because it actually seems like an entry point for a proper discussion, is I say, you know, you know, um, uh, mainstream economists think you've got to worry about balancing the budget and and inflation, right? Whereas soft currency thinkers really only think you have to worry about inflation. That you don't really have to worry about balancing the budget in and of itself. And so that's a converse, That's where you can sort of get into how does it actually work if it doesn't work like that? But you know, like if people are wrong about something, then they're wrong about it, right? Like it doesn't matter how where like. And at some point, you've got to confront. Um, uh, the fact that they're wrong. Now, let's take the example of this, but uh, on the military, so, but I don't think me borrowing money is the same as the government printing money, right? I don't have a mint. Um, I, you know, if I had like a bunch of, um, uh, uh, you know, like heavy dudes who work for me and I was like a, a drug dealer or whatever, then I could say, look, I'm writing you this IOU and it's good for the money. This is a thousand dollar IOU. Now give me my, you know, drugs or whatever. And people might accept that because, you know, they don't want to fight with me. Right. Then that would make me a bit more like a, a government or if I'm a huge company and you really want to do business with me, they might say, yeah, look, we're going to pay you next year. So the IOU is a bit like money, but the, the less powerful you are, the less capacity you have to print money or to, to borrow money or, or to do anything like that. So does that, but like take this but on the issue of the Australian dollar, if tomorrow Joe Biden says, when I come in, we're cutting Australia off. We're no longer interested in being defense partners with Australia. Australia, go fuck yourself. Um, if there's a war, we're not on your side anymore. The Australian dollar would collapse, right? Like my bet would be that the Australian dollar would take a major hit as people go, what the fuck is up? Australia's position in the world is, is no longer as secure. The Australian government's claim of territorial... Um, uh, you know, uh, sovereignty is is not as strong as it was when it had this superpower ally, right? So, like, I'm not, and I'm not saying it's one to one, but I think you do have like what MMT, you know, the MMT story about you know if I give you my business, I forget who was it, Mosler or whatever, Warren Mosler said if I give you my business card, it's worth nothing, but if I give you my business card and there's a dude at the at the at the, at the door of the room with a gun saying you can only get out when you give me those business cards and those business cards achieve value and like you know that gun in the room is important right like it's it's sort of it's 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 where it says something about where final decision making power rests on a range of issues and underpins and facilitates the ability to make and keep promises right like if australia was like well look you can buy australian dollars you can you can use australian dollars to buy all our you know our wheat or our coal or whatever and people are like, yeah, but you're not going to be able to ship it because Indonesia now controls your territorial waters and they're going to seize it when you can't export it to me. Then all of a sudden the Australian dollar is worth less. 
I see that it's important, you know, the role of political power, military power in maintaining a currency. And I certainly agree with your story. If, if the United States um, stopped, you know, being in a military partnership with Australia, then, you know, something might happen to the Australian dollar. Um, it might it might see a hit from that. We see these kinds of currency moves a lot of times when political things happen to various countries. But, you know, uh, I think you agree with us that it's not a one-to-one relationship between political power and, and monetary power. And I guess I'm just skeptical of the role of force as kind of like the primary thing to talk about when talking about kind of the hierarchy of money, kind of as Derek was getting into. But it's certainly in there. It's certainly important. So maybe we just disagree about the, the importance of, of, of different factors. Uh, let's go to Bethany. I was thinking similar to Austin, what Austin pointed out, that, that a lot of the countries that Derek listed that are that are doing well do have an econ- a military alliance with each other and with the United States and so on. So it's, even if they don't have a large military on their own, they're still kind of part of that. But at the same time, I was thinking about, for example, the money and banking class that Perry teaches, and he talks about sort of the major currencies. And, and there are certain currencies that like are, you know, particularly major, like I guess the Swiss franc is a big currency. And, you know, maybe the, the Belgian currency isn't, or, or maybe Australia isn't as much or something like that in the financial scene. So I guess this is just pointing me to the fact that Belgian currency is the euro. The euro, of course, right? Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Wait, are the Swiss not on the euro? Well, I really don't know. No, they're not. Okay, that makes sense. So so maybe that's part of it then. But I guess I, I should list the Australian dollar as a counterpoint. He didn't, he didn't happen to list that and is one of the major currencies, Perry Merling. So anyway, what this points me to is that like, in addition to these military alliances, there, as Derek pointed out, must be other aspects of how countries have like gotten involved in the financial markets and manage their currency and, and whatever else that kind of makes them prominent. So just like everyone else has been saying, there's obviously both going on. I don't have any knowledge of like how to weigh those against each other or anything like that because I just don't know but yeah I thought that it was interesting that he would list like these specific kind of currencies and the Swiss franc stood out to me because it's a relatively small country it's been relatively uninvolved militarily maybe that's part of its strength I don't know but but it's interesting that it has a prominent role in finance yeah well part of the reason it's been uninvolved militarily is because it's surrounded by mountains and the other part of that is because they have this strong military that they pride themselves in so I I bet um, Austin will bring that up so we're getting to the end Uh, let's go around and get people's final thoughts so final thoughts on petrodollars oil, Saudi Arabia, treasuries as a saving instrument, any of the MMT stuff we talked about, anything we talked about today, we'll go to Eddie and then Richard and then Neil. Go ahead, Eddie. I agree uh, a lot with what some of what Austin was talking about. Um, I think Ray Dalio uh, summarizes the situation uh, very well. I mean, it's it's not, um, I think it's not a coincidence that we, you know, reserve currencies went from the Dutch guilder to the British pound. Um, to the U.S. dollars, and it always shifted with, you know, the shift in, in military dominance. Um, you know, so Ray Dalio summarizes it by saying, look, there are always uh, going to be marginal conflicts um, in the world. I mean, there's always going to, going to be things that are a gray area, and people disagree about how they should go. And, you know, in the end, if you have military dominance, then things are generally going to go your way because if they don't go your way, you know, when push comes to shove, you're the one that's going to win the final conflict. So people, you know, kind of just defer to you generally. Um, uh, We talked about, um, you know, Alex brought up again, you know, with the, you know, the possibility of dollar devaluation, um, monetary policy and, and market dynamics. Um, you know, with monetary policy, uh, there is, 
there's limits to that. Um, one limit is that, you know, generally crises tend to happen when the economy is not going well. And so if the, you know, if the Fed wanted to strengthen the dollar because the dollar was losing value, then normally they would raise interest rates. But, you know, raising interest rates, on the other hand, if you're having a crisis at the same time, is, you know, going to be not good for your domestic um, economy. So that's, that's usually a, a problem. Um, the other issue is that interest rates, uh, you know, um, you know, on the markets, when you compare how much a currency can appreciate or depreciate, and you compare that to, you know, say a one percent or two percent change in interest rate, um, the appreciation or depreciation, uh, you know, is is much more important. Like it doesn't matter <laughs> to me if I get, you know, two extra percentage points in interest rate this year. Um, on my dollars, but the but the dollar overall depreciates ten percent. I'm still at a at a big loss. Um, and another part of that is, and so the other thing is is market dynamics. And it's true that when a currency gets cheap enough, then you know market participants, um, you know traders are are interested in buying a dollar, uh, buying a currency that gets too cheap. Um, but you know again, the, the but the 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 thing about that is that that is that tends to be a um, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, he wants to buy stocks when they're cheap, but he doesn't want to buy them when they're 5% off. He wants to buy them when they're 30% off or 50% off. And so, you know, you are going to have um, uh, that dynamic. Actually, if you look at the Weimar Germany example, they actually went down and then they went way up and then they went way down and all the way to zero. And the, the first... Um, you know, the, the first rally after the first dip was actually like a 50% rally. It was huge. Like, the, you know, the, the German currency went way down, way up. Yes, because people were speculating, oh, you know, even though Germany has lost the war, but it's still a big country, you know, eventually the economy will go back. And so they bought lots of German dollars. Value went way up. And that was actually a part of the dynamic um, when the final hyperinflation hit. Because you know, at at a, at a certain period of time, um, you know, I think it was one third or one half of the um, uh, of the bank accounts in Germany were actually foreign held. Actually, one third of their bank accounts were foreigners. You know, speculating in the German currency. So we did a whole one of these on the Weimar hyperinflation. I would encourage people to go check that out and listen to it. Certainly. All of the things that Eddie is talking about happened. The question is, would it have ended in hyperinflation if Germany wasn't making this commitment that they couldn't keep due to the reparations after World War One? Go check out that one for our discussion of that. Let's go to Richard, Neil, and then Bethany. Go ahead, Richard. Military power has always been important from like ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome and all these powers. If they're able to control the trade routes and things, then they're able to maintain their, like the result Pax Romana and things. Pax Romana is the Roman peace because you could go anywhere on the Roman roads and you wouldn't be accosted by like marauders or anything like that. And that was considered a great boon to their economy and whatnot. But after the collapse of Rome, there's like a thousand years of chaos and whatnot. There's this tale about um, King Richard coming back from the Crusades and getting held up and ransomed in Austria, I think it was. And so they, they were trying to raise all this gold in England. So if England was the power that it was in like the 18th century, they wouldn't have any trouble to get back, getting back to England and wouldn't have to pay the ransom. So the stability of your roads and your military power and things dictate everything about your role in the world. 
I think that's right. I don't mean to downplay the importance of military control and all of that, but I think it's still important to realize that we can tell the story of money in a complete way without having that be part of it. And that hierarchy of, of military power and political power certainly influences what's going on with money, but you can tell the story of money without that. And I think that's really important. Let's go to Neil, Bethany, and then Derek. Go ahead, Neil. I have nothing to say. Okay, we'll go to Bethany, Derek, and then Austin. So it was an interesting discussion, including bringing in kind of the international politics um, that can affect money in different ways. Uh, I guess I'm thinking now that we're at the end about different connections to basic income. So like what would have happened if, I don't know, if Saudi Arabia were paid more of the dollars to their citizens as like a basic income, even maybe more than they already did rather than holding treasuries. Does that overlap with the money that we can spend or maybe not? Depends on how like international the productive capacity is that maybe we're like tapping into. But so there's that question. And then I don't know, other questions would be like, since we're into geopolitics, like you mentioned, you know, who paid the basic income out first and how would that affect international money? And you know, there's just, I don't know, but there are different questions, but we just didn't, I didn't end up tying it as exclusively to basic income, I'm realizing. Good stuff. Let's go to Derek Austin and then David. Go ahead, Derek. What we worry about, what economists worry about and what commentators on, on economics worry about is a function of, you know, what we know about and then what our priorities are. I just think that that's usually, it would be it would be nice if when you read articles like this, if at the start there were uh, a little disclaimer from the author, people could say, well, here's what I think is most important, but now we're going to talk about this other thing. Um, but oftentimes it's really easy to get the sense that like, you know, this one thing is crucially important. And if it doesn't work out, it's going to be an enormous problem for, for everyone, right? And ultimately, I think this is where the standard of value definition of money really, really helps. And I think maybe the, the sort of the, the, the radical way in which it helps isn't really often appreciated because you sort of realize that the economy it's, as a whole is bigger than any of these one things. It's bigger than just oil. It's bigger than anyone's country. Uh, desire or willingness to sell you oil or any other thing. Um, you know, we live, we've lived through a century where oil was an incredibly important resource. Um, and now that gives leverage to certain, certain, certain countries over us potentially, and, or we might think it might, and, and that will change. These things will change. There's gonna be other things that will, that people value. And I think ultimately a lot of this, these kind of worries, whether it's about the size of the deficit or whether it's about the oil or whether it's about military power, like a lot of this comes down to, I think people are looking, always looking for something outside of money itself to draw attention to and to say, this is ultimately what's important. This is where the, our economy gets its strength or its sovereignty from. It's obviously not money, right? Because, well, what is money anyway, right? It's just, it's just a, this piece of paper. But once you understand money's function really as making all everything kind of come together into a common network that changes that changes the view so what becomes important is well how are we doing how is money serving us how is the economy serving us and then all these other things can find their place in that network and people just haven't really taken that perspective yet i don't know that's what's going through my mind so far i like that thanks derek let's go to austin and then david Okay, so first of all, I was planning on like trying to emphasize how much we agree in my final comments because, you know, obviously we do. That's why I come back to these things um, every week that I can because it's, it's great to talk to people who have a similar perspective and, you know, I find it very enlightening. But um, so what I was going to say was, look, I agree, you know, military forces and everything, it's, it's one of many things. But in the context of Saudi Arabia, understanding, you know, what Saudi, the, the relationship between the Saudi government, the US dollar, petrol, all of this, you know, the military is a huge part of that. Military power is a huge part of that story. 
um, that in, in particular with Saudi Arabia, that this, that, this, that this thing that the author of the article builds up to be like, oh, it's going to be a really big deal. They're going to sell the treasuries. Like in terms of the relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia, there's a lot more at stake. Like probably the aircraft carriers, probably the actual military deployed in the region has a higher dollar value than the treasuries. I don't know, right? Like, but it could well do. And even if it doesn't, it's still more important. Even if the higher, it doesn't have a higher dollar value in terms of the ship costs this much, right? Um, but when you said before that we can tell a complete story about money without mentioning, um, you know, sort of violence or coercion or force, I'm not sure that, that I agree with that. I think that if you, you know, if I was met an alien and they had no concept of money and I had to explain it from the ground up, I would have to include the state, right? I would have to include, well, what's a government? Does a government exist? And, you know, um, and this, this might be an important distinction because this is, this is relevant to, you know, is, is, is money a bottom-up mechanism that arises out of markets and trade? Or is it a top-down mechanism that arises out of, you know, the temple and the, and the priest and, and the, the government sort of imposing on society you know, taxes and, and, and debt collection and, and so forth, right? So is, and I think that it's actually the second story, the second story where it's like, which is kind of ties in with what, what um, you know, the frequent guest on this uh, discussion group podcast, Carl Weidequist talks about is that like, look, we all just had access to the world, like theoretically, very simplified version. We all had access to the world's resources. Then violent people came and took it away and said, no, you don't. Now you have to pay money to get those and you work to get the money, right? So that, that the monetary economy is like a trap that the state and the corporate, the state corporate complex kind of plays on the population. And I think there's validity to that story. And I think it's also an extremely good argument for why a basic income um, is justified because it's sort of restoring something that was taken away. If money is something that just sort of bubbles up and you get it by trading, well, then if you don't have any, it's your fault for not being enterprising enough, right? Whereas if money is this thing that's, that the powerful use and that the powerful impose on society, then there's a bit more of an idea that, well, maybe, you know, the powerful owe us something for what they're getting out of this system. So I think that in this particular case, I think the role of coercion is central. The role of, 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 of military power is central in terms of talking about Saudi Arabia and petrodollars. And, you know, the other thing we could have mentioned is that the U.S. used to be an, ex, an oil exporter in the, in the first place, right? When it was Texas was the biggest producer of oil as well, right? So that probably helped give U.S. currency value which allowed them to accumulate gold and do all these other things as well anyhow look oil is a good promise to make but force is a better one so i think in terms of bottom up versus top down i would say that the need for money emerges bottom up from markets and our institutions fulfill that need from the top down and if our institutions didn't fulfill that need we'd build those institutions from the bottom up so there are bottom up and top down aspects to it let's go to david Thanks again, everybody, for for you guys were fascinating to listen to today. Um, I, I guess I want to I want to talk about this. Um, I, I know that I'm going to be in agreement with both of, most of you here when I say that I like to think of money as I, I like the idea that money is 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 kind of like a promise. And um, when when I see the relationship between uh, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, the article points out that we're we were very different nations, you know, a world away from each other, with different values um, often. Um, you know, at least supposed values from each other, and and I think that that the relationship we've had with Saudi Arabia is is flawed and it's imperfect, but it's it's a successful success story because I think that we've moved from being really codependent on each other 
um, towards an independence and interdependence with each other. And I, I think that we've done that um, by trust, you know, whether or not Saudi Arabia could or could not have dumped treasuries and negatively affect the economy, they didn't. And whether or not we could have or could not have um, invaded and just taken the oil for our own, we didn't. And so I, I think that there was, you know, that, that, that we, that in a lot of ways, um, you know, money is, is great, but you also have to have relationships with people. And that sometimes those are the real constraints on the economy is, is how do, how do people relate to each other and not lose sight of that when we just talk about banking and look at the numbers and stuff like that, because there's real people behind these numbers too. I like that. That's a good positive note to end on. And I like the petrodollar story because it does kind of serve as a microcosm for what's happening in the economy in general. We have the regular dollars that are kind of the spending instruments, and then we have the treasuries, which are the savings instruments. So selling treasuries to Saudi Arabia is the way we get them to save dollars. And the money in our economy has to have somewhere to go. A big part of that is savings, not just with Saudi Arabia, but domestically and globally. Next week, we're actually going to be kind of continuing on a similar theme. We're going to be talking about fiscal policy versus monetary policy. Where does basic income fit in? Is it a fiscal policy or is it a form of monetary policy? Both, neither. We'll get into all of that next week.